Woke up to more snow today, and I'll bet that means Laura Johnston will be on the ski the ski hill, not the ski slope, this weekend. Yes, Laura? Yes. And you'll probably be in an ice skating rink watching somebody play hockey? Oh, that's happening. Yep. <laughs> okay. We're right in the thick of January. It's today in Ohio. The news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura, as well as Layla Atassi and Lisa Garvin. It's a Friday. The last Friday in January, we're halfway through the two bitter months of the year. Yay. <laughs> Only two bitter months? Come on. <laughs> in March, you get the promise of spring, right? You get the beginning of spring. That's Just my story. wake me in April. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to wake you up right now. Let's go. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine keeping secret all the goodies that he gave to Intel to build a microchip factory in Ohio? The factory is a huge win for DeWine, so voters are unlikely to blanch at the public cost. Why the secrecy, Lisa? I don't know. It makes me a little nervous, doesn't it? Make y'all a little nervous. It, it makes you wonder what, if he gave away the farm or something. But there is a press conference today at one o'clock, so they're going to discuss those state incentives. So we can gird our loins for that. But so far, there's really been no numbers bandied about, except for Lieutenant Governor John Husted did say that the state has committed to 1.2 billion dollars in infrastructure upgrades, including widening State Road 161 between New Albany and Columbus. Um, um, Dan Tierney, who is the spokesman for DeWine, says, well, the details are still being finalized. It's a work in progress. And, uh, you know, but on the other hand, policy matters. Uh, Zach Schiller says, well, details would be kind of nice. We want to know how did the state negotiate this, how it affects the Ohio budget and how it affects future resources that might be available to other economic drivers. Intel is not really talking about the role of incentives in their choice of Ohio. But the three things they look at is availability of talent pool infrastructure, which Ohio is working on, and the regulatory environment of the state, which kind of gives me a little bit of pause. I wonder if we gave up some regulatory uh, oversight or something in that situation. So I guess we'll find out at one o'clock today. Yeah, I just, the thing is that getting this industry into Ohio with the high paying jobs, thousands of them, it seems like no one's going to hold it against them if he gave something up. I'm kind of glad it's down there. I mean, I worked for nine years in Orlando, which is the home of Disney and Disney owned the place. I mean, Disney got everything it wanted anytime it wanted. Um, and it's not really a pleasant experience to live in a company town where the, the needs of a company is put ahead of the needs of the people. And maybe that's happening down there. But in Northeast Ohio, we just get the benefit that there'll be lots of more taxes coming in to the state, to the state coffers that we're not providing. I, ju I just want to see it. What did you give away? Why not tell us? And you're probably right. Maybe it's scary. You know, maybe he gave away more than money. Maybe he started right. giving away firstborn children or something. And there was a law change know. in the state recently. It's called the Mega Project thing. Um, you know, so companies invest $1 billion or more or create a $75 million payroll would be exempt from state income taxes. And I believe, I believe that law change happened late last year. So they might have been, you know, greasing the skids for this. The one thing in Andrew's story that threw me is the, the, in, the kind of the intimation that 
the deal might not be done, like all the incentives might not be locked down. I mean, how can that be? They're coming. They've committed to coming, so they must know what their incentives are. That seems like a dodge, like they're going to keep mm-hmm. some more stuff secret so they can later say, oh, yeah, that wasn't quite cooked yet. Something's being cooked. We'll have to see. It's today in Ohio. Will Ohio Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine's unprecedented refusal to recuse himself from his dad's gerrymandering case hurt the DeWine brand enough to endanger the re-election bids of both Justice DeWine and Governor Mike DeWine. Layla, I do think the recriminations for what Pat DeWine did are going to be far-reaching. I do suspect there will be some sort of serious censure of him for Hmm. not recusing because it's inexcusable. He was ruling on his father's case when his father was a chief witness. But what does it mean? What did we find that it meant for their bids to get reelected this year? Well, Jeremy Pelzer took a look at this question and he posed it to a number of court observers. For instance, Jeremy Fogel, a retired federal judge who's now executive director of the Berkeley Judicial Institute in California, said that we're at a low point in terms of trust and confidence in the courts these days. So it's a good idea for judges to be mindful of the appearance of impropriety or favoritism. You know, as we all know, Justice DeWine participated in writing the minority opinion that that would have upheld an unconstitutional gerrymander approved by his dad, the governor. And, you know, Ohio's judicial code of ethics requires state judges to recuse themselves on cases where their parents are parties. But that rule doesn't apply to Ohio Supreme Court justices for some reason. Um, so then there, you know, Jeremy talked to Paul Beck, a political scientist at Ohio State University, who told him that he wasn't surprised that Pat DeWine made the decision he did. He said, you know, I think it's he's probably under enormous pressure, self-perceived or real pressure from his own party to try to protect their interests in redistricting. And then Tom Sutton, a political science professor at Baldwin Wallace, said that Democrats could use this issue to mobilize liberal voters into turning out against Justice DeWine, but only if they work to bring the matter to voters' attention. He said, I think this is handing a Democratic candidate a really potent issue that they could use effectively. If this doesn't get made into a campaign issue that Democrats run hard on, it won't resonate with voters and they won't be thinking about it or remember it. And, you know, honestly, as cynical as that sounds, I think Tom Sutton is right on the money there. I don't think this will register with the majority of voters at all. For DeWine, Republican voters who turn on him, the the governor, uh, you know, will do so because they hated his public health policies. And when they see his son's name on the ballot, the name association with his father will hurt him, too. I really don't think that this issue is going to hurt either one. I don't know, Layla. We're storytellers and and we know the power of the story. And Sutton's right. If the Democrats don't portray it correctly, it won't work. We've talked about this before. The Democrats have been clowns for years in, in campaigning and using things. But if they were to tell this story well and tell the story of HB6 well and tell the story of the agony of trying to get a vaccine last year well, I do think that would resonate. I think it's just a matter of being the storyteller and getting the message across. And that's where Tom Sutton's correct. If they don't do that and they've shown no ability to do it for a decade, it won't be it won't mean a thing. But that's when you compound it with the other issues that have been problematic for the De- for you know Mike DeWine. But like you know gerrymandering alone, do you think gerrymandering alone? No, have no, the it's not the gerrymandering. It, it's it's not the gerrymandering. It's very easy to deliver the message. Ohio Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine 
broke with 200 years of precedence and did not remove himself from a case involving his dad. Nobody will misunderstand that. You deliver that message effectively, everybody's going to know this guy's a bum. He should not have done that. Everyone knows it. We could not find a single legal mind that was not aghast that he did not recuse himself. And that you could deliver effectively. It's just, do they? I mean, I, I, you know, we'll have to see if they're able to make that message clear through the summer and the fall. It's today in Ohio. How are the Republican candidates for U.S. Senate in Ohio falling all over themselves to release questionable poll results showing them to be climbing or holding on to second or third place? Bernie Moreno's campaign proudly held a press conference to proclaim him third. Does that make him the RC Cola of the Senate race? I mean, Laura, you know, there's Avis, there's Hertz, there's Dollar Rent-A-Car, and Bernie is the Dollar Rent-A-Car, and he wants you to know it. I was just thinking, does that make Jane Timken Pepsi? Like, uh, because obviously Mandela's Coke. Coke Zero. Coke Zero. Analogy. But this is usually polling is for internal efforts to look at where you stand and have the campaign make decisions. And obviously there is outside polling that we as media have been a lot more reticent to use recently because it's not very accurate. But now we've got internal polling that candidates are pointing to as as reasons that you should vote for them, even if it doesn't say they're winning. So Jane Timken started this early in December with a poll her campaign commissioned that showed her in second place. I mean, if your campaign commissions the poll and you still can't get in first, I don't know who they're asking. But she's a former Ohio Republican Party chairman, and she broke this news on a podcast hosted by Steve Bannon. So Take, take that how you will. But um, then Bernie Moreno did hold a conference call with reporters last week to tout this internal campaign poll that showed him moving to third place following <laughs> a multi-million dollar advertising blitz. And that was hosted by Kellyanne Conway, a former, well, a former Trump uh, high advisor. She's advising Moreno's campaign. So maybe this is more about who's announcing it than even the results because they are just desperate for attention here. Yeah, I, th- it throws me, though, that you'd have a big press event to say I'm in third place. I mean, it's like, OK, right, there's, it's not the place. Olympics. Like you don't get a medal for third. Yeah, there, it's just one of those bizarre moments. The other thing is there was a line in Andrew's story. One of the people we talked to said, you know, the candidates internal polling is much more accurate than the polls that the media does and others do. And I'm throwing the flag, man. That is no way, no how true. (laughs) There's not like they use different science. They all use the same science and people lie. It's just. Well, there was also a a line in Andrew's story that about the fact that consultants have their favorite polling firms. So they, it's a, you know, tit for tat agreement that like you get hired as a consultant, you hire this polling company or vice versa, and they're getting the results that they want. Yeah, but there's a reason we've decided not to use horse race polls. They're completely unreliable. They're almost always wrong. They've been proven wrong for all sorts of reasons. You know, we have a different feeling about issues polls, but the fact that the candidates are doing them takes away all their credibility but i think it's hilarious that they're doing them and coming out and saying i'm not winning like not really the message to send to people i'm a loser i'm a loser well i think they're saying i'm moving up like i'm doing better than i was before but like if you're spending multi-million dollars on advertising i would hope it's gonna budge 
One other interesting aspect of this is it's not just for the media attention. It might be to get the attention of Donald Trump because he's sensitive to backing winners. And Kellyanne Conway said a lot of people are talking to him about this race. And obviously we have four candidates at least who are competing to be the Trumpiest here and to be his favorite because he still weirdly holds sway over some Republican voters. So if they can prove that they are at the top of these internal polls, maybe he'll endorse them. Yeah, well, we'll see. I, I don't know, though, that Donald Trump is going to get behind somebody that is going public to say, I am third. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. <laughs> Environmental reporter Pete Krause calls the plan for keeping Asian carp out of the Great Lakes an aquatic house of horrors. I love that. That's really good. Pete Krause, way to go there. What is in store for invasive species, Lisa? Well, these Asian carp are going to have to run a gauntlet just to get to any of the Great Lakes. There's a new project, the Interbasin Project. It's an $850 million effort at the Brandon Road Lock and Dam, which is 27 miles southwest of Chicago on the Des Plaines River, where they have seen carp. So they're, they're going to have to, like I said, run a gauntlet here. So first, and I don't know whether... Yeah, I don't know whether down is up because in Texas, the rivers flow south. I guess here the rivers flow north. But anyway, so the first part of this gauntlet is a underwater speakers. And researchers are trying to find just the right noise that will get carp to push the carp back away from the area. Then if they get through that, there's an air pipe that'll be laid along the stream bed that emits a curtain of bubbles. And that's pretty effective on some of the smaller carp. If they get through that, there's an electric barrier that will <laughs> be put up later and that will work on larger carp. Now, all these three you know, uh, deterrents are, I think, upstream, downstream from an existing electric barrier at Romeoville. So if they get through these three, they still have another electric barrier they have to go through. The problem with electric barriers, though, <laughs> is there might be some stray voltage. And so if there was a man overboard on a ship, they might get shocked. And so they're thinking about oh, that. Geez. Yeah. And then later on, they're thinking about using a, a, a technique to flush the water downstream through the lock that would blow away fish eggs or larvae that have gathered on ships and, and that kind of thing. They're also offering a bounty, $100 a fish uh, for the eight, for the black carp, which is apparently harder to find. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources is offering that bounty. The only thing we've seen in Lake Erie, there was a grass carp that was spotted spawning in Lake Erie uh, near Sandusky, uh, in 2013. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it, yes, it's, it's kind of a, a house of horrors, but it would be worse to get these carp in Lake Erie. It would destroy the ecosystem of the lakes. It sounds like an American Ninja Warrior contest. <laughs> right. there, are, there are humans who pay to run through these kinds of uh, obstacle well, courses. Don't suggest that as an idea. That'll be a new athletic event. Over right. Reality show. So and how, if, do they know, prevent, how do they prevent these measures from harming other wildlife? I mean, I, electric voltage in water and, you know, there's lots of other wildlife that... I don't think they want any... I mean, the weird thing about Chicago is the way that, you know, what Lisa was saying about upstream or downstream is that they connected two watersheds, both mm -hmm. the Great Lakes watershed and the Mississippi River watershed, because they were trying to get all the pollution out of Chicago and flush it down through the Mississippi River. So this is flowing downstream. It is flowing south, but these fish can 
can connect to the lakes by swimming north. So I don't think they want anything coming from the Mississippi mm-hmm. River into the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think there's been a case of ever successfully preventing an invasive species from moving. So this is going to be interesting. They're really investing the effort and the science and the money to make this the first time. And we wish him luck, but but history is not well. Not and I a hate to think of the carp if the, if the carp make it through all of these barriers, they're going to be some super carp, you know. So yeah. <laughs> I know that's true. Evolution. Oh my gosh! Now then, you're super yeah, you're... carp. All right, Pete Krause. I hope you're listening. That's your next headline. It's today in Ohio. This might be my next or my favorite story of the day, Layla. What is the latest from Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb about the city's ability to get snow cleared from the city streets? This story kind of gives us a, an idea that there might be fulfillment of the hope and promise that came <laughs> along with the election of Justin yeah. Bibb. So so Bibb seemed, first of all, to back off of his claim from last week that he had inherited this broken snow removal system from his predecessor, Frank Jackson. At yesterday's press conference, he instead said that the city just simply wasn't prepared for the intensity and the pace of the snowfall on Martin Luther King Day. He said that the system was designed to handle a lot of snow, but not when it was accumulating as quickly as it did that day. So he announced yesterday some very interesting changes. First, they're outfitting more city vehicles with plows and training more city personnel to operate them so they can scale up their response when the snow is falling as fast and furious as it was that day. Second, they're redesigning the deployment system. Currently, the plows would concentrate on clearing the thoroughfares first and then hitting the secondary streets. But under Bibb's new plan, they will deploy plows to both main streets and the side streets simultaneously. Third, they will use technology to determine the most efficient routes for the operators of these vehicles, making adjustments like incorporating more right-hand turns rather than left-hand turns. You know, left-hand turns take longer. So little adjustments like that can really add up over the course of, you know, a snow plowing, uh, you know, route. And perhaps most interesting, though, they're going to post on the city's website a live tracker for snowplows so that residents can be can see in real time or nearly real time, it updates every two minutes, where the plows are and which streets have been cleared already. And that will hopefully give residents some comfort if they can see the progress the plows have made and then anticipate when one is going to make it to their street. And Bibb acknowledged that the city was inundated with calls for plow service from residents and that about a thousand of those calls went unanswered. He took responsibility for that yesterday and he said he and his team have some ideas for how to improve the city's 311 call system so that doesn't happen again. All in all, I I think Bibb's approach here sounds very solid and very much in keeping with his campaign promise to modernize City Hall, increase transparency with residents, and and his decision to refrain from disparaging Frank Jackson this time was probably pretty wise. As a new mayor, he's learning from his missteps, and that's a good sign, too. I'm I'm still very optimistic about Justin Bibb, and I think uh, yesterday's press conference had a lot of good news in it. Yeah, I mean, despite the way some in the media did a feeding frenzy about the broken system, we knew because we had been reporting on this for years, he didn't inherit a broken system. Any system can be improved. And I was glad to see he backed off on that. It was a cheap mm-hmm, shot. Mm-hmm. The thing about this that that I think is is big, they had transponders on all the snowplows yeah. that, that from the previous administration. What he did, it's it seems so simple, but it's actually profound, is he... Put him, he's putting a map up so you can see 
where every plow is, which streets are plowed. I mean, I, I came across this by accident yesterday before he announced it. And it's, wow, this is going to be great. And this is seems like a small step. But think about how much information people want that City Hall has that could suddenly be online. We're mm-hmm. going to go and look mm-hmm. at all the other City Hall websites in the country now to see what the possibilities are, because he's the first guy who's not a Luddite. It's who's in charge. Mm-hmm. And so I was I'm I'm sh- kind of shocked that in his first month, this is the solution he's come up with. And I do think it it's a harbinger of very good things to come. Mm-hmm. I salute him for doing it. And I think people are going to be excited as he brings more and more. What if you had a crime map uh, mm-hmm. in, in real time, a real time crime map showing you what's going on in your neighborhood? You know, I think people want to see that they have it in other cities. What if you could apply for every kind of permit on City Hall easily online? They do that in other cities. They don't do it here. So square one for Justin Bibb. Can't wait to see what's next. It's today in Ohio. The Cuyahoga County Public Library System is joining a national trend to save borrowers some money. Laura, what are they doing? This is really great news. They are going fine free. So just because you don't return your library book on time, that doesn't mean you're going to be out 10 cents a day or whatever it was for, for the fines for the books. So they will no longer charge the daily fines and they actually have eliminated all existing fines on cardholder accounts. Any item that's not returned within 21 days after its due date will be considered a loss, but the co- and the cardholder will be charged a replacement fee, but the fee will be waived when and if the item is returned. Um, and you can you can still owe up to $99 in unreturned books and, and be able to use the library. So this is something that a lot of libraries have been turning to. The Cleveland Public Library went fine-free in 2019. ClevNet, which has a consortium of 45 libraries in 12 counties, went fine-free during the pandemic. And plenty of these libraries, I think all of them, have renewing automatically. So like, as long as the book isn't requested by somebody else, like you can keep it past that two or three weeks. So um, it's really good news. I mean, I think I think all everybody who who takes out library books and doesn't want to feel anxious about returning them and owing money will be very happy. Let me play the old dude in the rocking chair on the porch. So <laughs> for years, decades, forever, libraries used fines to get the books back, the the threat of fines, especially with popular books, new releases. There's a lot of demand in the early months for the books and they want to make sure they're getting them out. So the philosophy forever was if you have a threat of fines, people will bring them back. Do the fines not work? Is that what libraries have found or are they just going to buy enough books that it doesn't matter? I think they found it wasn't a real deterrent for a lot, you know, like 10 cents a day doesn't matter to a lot of people, but it could stop people from of less means feeling confident that they could borrow because what if they couldn't find the book or they couldn't get it back in time. Also, it's not how they made money to like buy new books. They didn't rely on it for their budget. So I think that this is just a lot friendlier system and think about it with since the pandemic started, I've been almost exclusively ebooks. So those go like they just kind of disappear off your your iPad when you're done reading it. So people get used to that idea of never having to deal with fines. And I think, you know, we're moving away from actual physically bound books anyway. Okay, cool. Good to see the Cuyahoga County is following in the steps of the Cleveland Library System. It's today in Ohio. Which part of Cuyahoga County has the highest tax rate? Lisa, I did not know this. I would not have said this was the place with the highest tax rate. So it's a bit of a surprise. It is, but it, but because of its proximity to a, to a 
a wealthy neighborhood. The number one, the highest tax rate in the Cuyahoga County is the Shaker Square area of Cleveland. Shaker Square is in the city of Cleveland, but this is the portion of Shaker Square neighborhood that's in the Shaker Heights school system. So they're paying $3,845 per $100,000 valuation on their homes. Uh, Shaker Heights the city of Shaker Heights came in at number three at 37.59, and they're totally in the Shaker school system. Number two was South Euclid, and that kind of surprised me. And that's the portion of South Euclid that's in the Cleveland Heights University Heights school district. They paid 37.95, and University Heights itself in total came in at 36.63 at number six. So yeah, very kind of kind of surprising. And like Maple Heights, I would have never guessed they came in at, at number seven. And they're completely within their school district at $3,392 per $100,000 valuation. Yeah, so there were some ones on here that I was kind of surprised to see. Garfield Heights at number four. The home values, though, in Maple Heights and Garfield Heights are much lower than some of the other places you're talking about. What surprised me about Shaker Square is there are some residences there that are quite expensive. Mm -hmm. And when you put that kind of a tax rate on a high-value residents that that's a gigantic tax bill i just said i i for some reason i just believe shaker heights was always number one and cleveland heights was always number two uh so it was interesting to see check out the story on cleveland.com laura i should get back the the pete cross story on the carp has, that hasn't published yet right what is when are we going to put that on cleveland.com i think we're publishing that on monday but i haven't it, it'll be in the next few days. So keep your eye on cleveland.com. Right. We'll so you out. got an advance on yeah. it, but you can't read listener it yet. Exclusive. So check back later. Yeah, listener <laughs> exclusive. I like that. <laughs> okay. It's today in Ohio. Everybody talks about equity and inclusion these days, but concrete examples of progress are hard to come by. Is the effort announced by Cleveland and Huntington Bank this week likely to spur growth of small and minority-owned businesses in several city neighborhoods? Layla, does it look like it'll work? Uh, you know, I don't know. This is another another good example of uh, Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb delivering on a campaign promise. This this program has potential to reinvigorate the city's southeast side, which has really suffered for a very long time with disinvestment. Uh, the city of Cleveland has joined a partnership with Huntington Bank to grow small and minority businesses around the region, with the city focusing its involvement on supporting businesses in the Mount Pleasant, Union Miles, and Lee Harbor neighborhoods. Uh, the nonprofit Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, along with community development corporations, are going to support a staffer in the city's economic development department known as an entrepreneur in residence. And that person will provide coaching and training and help connect minority businesses in Southeast neighborhoods with city assistance like the Neighborhood Retail Assistance Program and the Storefront Development Program. And, you know, the program at City Hall is among 11 partnerships funded with more than half a million dollars from Huntington Bank as part of their efforts to support equity and inclusion. But, you know, Huntington's other partners for the program are nonprofits in Cuyahoga, Lorraine, Ashtabula counties, including Tri-C, the Urban League of Greater Cleveland and Global Cleveland. Now, of course, you know, to keep it in perspective, $500,000 isn't a ton of money when spread among 11 other partnerships. So how much will be devoted to Cleveland's entrepreneur and residents and how far will it stretch? How many entrepreneurs will it support? We're, you know, not exactly sure of that. But at the very least, you know, maybe this would be, you know, plant the seed for what will be a pilot program at City Hall that council might decide to fund more fully in the future if it's successful. It's a great idea for sure. 
Well, it's nice to see a bank like Huntington Bank getting involved in it too, because banks have been criticized over the years for not investing in the neighborhoods. So That's true. let's hope this works because the city, some of the city neighborhoods certainly could use a shot in the arm. It's today in Ohio. All right. This might be my second favorite story. Get back. Peter Jackson's three-part documentary of one of the last sets of recording sessions by the Beatles sparked a renewed interest in the revolutionary group. And now we're going to get special access to part of that history in Cleveland. Laura, I suspect I'm the only real Beetle nut on this podcast. Oh, but no, you're answer no, no, the no. Question. Oh, oh, good. good, I, good. Just, All right, good. I could tee it up for you and Lisa to talk yeah. about. But what, starting what March 18th. About? This is a, starting March 18th. It's a new Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit. It's going to transport fans back to the Beatles' legendary January 1969 studio sessions and final concert atop the Apple Corps headquarters. Mm-hmm. The showcase is called The Beatles' Get Back to Let It Be that focuses on the, the album Let It Be. It has instruments, clothing, handwritten lyrics seen in the Jackson film, as well as high-def film clips. Um, record acetate from the sessions and photography by Linda McCartney and Ethan Russell. The one thing that stood out to me is we're going to get to see John Lennon's iconic eyeglasses, as well as three screening rooms with footage from each location featured in the docuseries. That's the Twickenham Film Studios, Apple Studios, and Apple Rooftop. So go at it, guys. Well, I haven't been going to any place that's public, but I'll I'll definitely go see this. I thought that that docuseries was the highlight of the year on uh, television. I still can't believe how good it was. Lisa, so you're a Beatles fan? Oh, gosh, yes. My very first record album was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And I, wow. you know, yeah, well, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, a few years older, but um, I can still remember that iconic moment in Let It Be when they were singing on top of the roof. And it's like, and I I hope we pass the audition. I think it was George Harrison that said that. Right. But yeah, I, I just, you know, yeah. I, and it, it frightens me. Well, it doesn't frighten me. It dismays me that so many young people, you say, Paul McCartney is like, who's Paul McCartney? Oh my God. I mean, the Beatles did so much. They were such a big part of the British invasion in the 60s and really did a wonderful body of work. And I just hope young kids can, can experience that. Yeah. I, what blew me away about that docuseries is I've been a Beatles fan for a long time. I've read biographies and, and I I can't believe that that footage had been available for 50 Mm -hmm. years and, and had not been seen. And what Peter Jackson did to make it all, all the audio work is, is just marvelous. It, it's a tremendous thing. And the last half hour where they are doing the concert with something like 10 cameras and they're on the street where people are looking up, it, it's got suspense, it's got humor, it's just terrific. So it'll be fun to see the, the artifacts of that. Smart move by the Rock Hall to bring that together. Look forward to seeing how many people show up to go and visit. It's today in Ohio, and that wraps up a week of discussion on this podcast. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Everybody stay warm this weekend. We'll be back Monday and talk about the news.